Okay, y'all, John chapter 2, we're going to look at 23, and then we're going to move all the way into chapter 3 into verse 15. Uh, I don't mind telling you that I'm pretty excited about this passage, so if it gets a little excited up here, you know, I'm just saying, it could happen, it can happen. All right, a young boy is sent home from school with an assignment. The assignment is designed by the teacher to have the talk with the parents, because the kids are at that age where they're going to have the talk. They're either going to have the talk with their parents, or little Johnny sitting next to your little child in homeroom is going to give them the talk. So she's trying to encourage this talk to happen at home. So she gives an assignment, uh, a research assignment, and this is what it was. It was on the origin of life, specifically, where do babies come from, right? So our young boy, our person that we're looking at, gets home and interviews his mother and says, Mom, how did I get here? She says, well, honey, you know, a stork left you in our living room, and he scribbled down his notes very carefully, and he moves on to his dad. Dad, how did I get here? And the dad's like, uh, uh, go ask your mama. He goes and asks his mama again. Then he goes on to the granddad. Granddad, how did mom get here? Well, son, your mom was brought by a stork and left on our front porch. And he's thinking, and he goes, all right, my sister, I got an older sister, and she just had a baby. So he texts his sister and says, sis, um, how did your baby get here? And now it's become known as the stork answer because that's what she gave him. So he finished his research. He wrote it all up, and he turned his assignment. And on the opening heading paragraph of his assignment, he said, having completed my investigations, I am forced to conclude that there hasn't been a natural birth in our family for three generations. <laughs> That's John's goal for you in this passage. His goal is for you and me to not only think with our heads, but feel in our hearts that Christianity is a mystery. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. from John chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 15. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, Lord, we ask that you would shine on this page. Would you fill us with your spirit? Grant word and power, a demonstration of your spirit and power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what are some mysteries that are out there today? Let's start with the Bermuda Triangle, right? You got you got Bermuda, you got Puerto Rico, and you got Miami forming this triangle. Planes fly through there, pilots report all their instruments going haywire, ships mysteriously being lost in that area, right? That's pretty mysterious. Well, how about the Loch Ness Monster? Endless sightings, videos, photos for years. Even when I was a kid in elementary school, we'd buy these books of the Bermuda Triangle and the Loch Ness Monster and see in Nessie this serpent, dinosaur-looking thing, but no one can find it. And then how about Jack the Ripper? Who is he? Who is the notorious serial killer in the late 1800s in London? How many shows have been made on that? Good night. How many investigative shows? What about the Shroud of Turin, a 2,000-year-old face imprinted on this shroud that many believe is Jesus? What about that? How How about Bigfoot? Is he real? Sasquatch? UFOs, what about them? What about the crop circles? How about this? How did they really build the pyramids? I just Googled that yesterday. You know, how did they build the pyramids? You know, all these explanations. And then, of course, I finally found the answer. Nobody knows how they built those things. How long have they been around? 5,000 B.C.? Who shot JFK? 1963, just up the road. Or for some of you, you're still concerned about who shot J.R., We need to talk if that's you. Do you know that when I went over to the Soviet Union to start campus ministries, they kept asking me about JR. Can you tell us about JR at Dallas? I'm like, oh, my word. Okay, enough of that. Live science, you know what they want to know? They list their 10 top historical mysteries that they have found. They want to know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and cleans out Jerusalem, destroys it, goes into the temple, takes all the valuables back with him, The Ark of the Covenant was there. What happened to it? Where did it go? There are so many myths and legends and stories about that. How many books have been written about that? Raiders of the Lost Ark. How many movies? Yeah. Have been shown about that. All right. What about life science also asked, was there a city of Atlantis? And then there's the all-time mystery of all mysteries. Kids, I really want you to think about this. What came first? the chicken or the egg. Think about it. 
And then my personal favorite, it's now my personal favorite, fish falling from the sky. In, in 2000 in Ethiopia, a local newspaper reported the unusual rain of fish, which dropped in millions from the air, some dead, others still struggling, created panic among the mostly religious farmers. Now, there was no storm in the area. These were only selectively fish. No worms, no dirt, no seahorses, no seashells. So if it was some storm that swept up a bunch of creatures and then dumped them in the middle of a desert in Ethiopia, why was it only fish? Ah, <laughs> I got you, don't I? Yeah, okay. For something to qualify as a real mystery, according to Webster's, according to Cambridge, according to Internet Wikipedia and other Internet, all Internet sources of dictionaries, to qualify, it has to be something beyond understanding. Now, don't miss this. It's not irrational. It's not stupid. It's super rational. It's ultra rational. It's above and beyond reason. Not irrational, super rational. If that's the case, it's a mystery according to these sources. Now, they go on and they add for religious mystery one other criteria. So it's got to be above reason, above understanding. But for a religious myth or a religious mystery, here's the second criteria. Understanding can only come by revelation. So these are these sources. I'm not talking about looking at mysterion, the Greek word in the Hebrew, and finding out what the definition is. These sources say if you want to be able to understand what a religious mystery is. It's got to be beyond understanding, but understanding it can only come from a source outside of reason. It can only come from revelation. In other words, reason has its limits. Reason cannot solve religious mysteries. So if you take reason to a religious mystery and all you've got is reason, it will baffle you. It'll bedazzle you. It'll twist you all up in knots. It will puzzle you. It will confuse you. It'll be unintelligible to you. You won't understand it. Welcome to the world of Nicodemus. Look at verse 2. This man Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, basically he says, Who are you? I mean, you got to be some kind of teacher because only someone from God can do this kind of stuff you're doing. Who are you, Jesus? In other words, Jesus is a mystery to Nicodemus. Jesus responds to Nicodemus in verse 3, but it doesn't help. See what happens in verse 4? Nicodemus says to him, but how can a man be born when he's old? I mean, what are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? In other words, in other words, what Jesus is saying is a mystery to Nicodemus. Jesus responds again to Nicodemus in verses 4 through 8, but Nicodemus is now losing his mind. In verse 9, he says to him, how can these things be? What are you talking about? How can these be, Jesus? I'm losing my mind here. In other words, what we're saying, what Jesus is saying is a legit mystery. It is legit. 
Reason is not enough. Reason has its limits. Some of you know exactly how Nicodemus feels right now. You have been asking, you've been struggling with who Jesus is for a long time. You want to know, is he, is he, is he Lord? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? You struggle with the reality of, can you really trust the Bible? Is the Bible really reliable? Can there only be one true way? Religion amongst all these religions? And you wonder, how can, it, how can a good God allow so much suffering? And how can a loving God send people to hell? In other words, Christianity is a mystery to you. And then others of us should know more about how Nicodemus feels right now. Because we're way too confident. We're way too certain. We're way too right. We're way too unfeeling, too uncompassionate, too unloving, too unable to get into the world of another human being and try to understand where they're coming from and to be able to relate in some way to where they are in their human condition. Because Christianity for us is that it's not mysterious enough for us. It's too certain. It's too reasonable and rational. The Apostle John is unlocking for us in this text the mystery of Christianity. And the way that he does, he says, look, before you take another step into this mystery, there's something you've got to know before you do this. And so he's going to do it right at the beginning, and we're going to look at it. Here's what he's going to say to you and me as we explore the mystery of Christianity. He wants you to know reason is not enough. Reason cannot take you there. Reason has its limits. Reason has its place. But we're moving into a realm of reality and a realm of meaning and a realm of understanding that's ultra-rational. Supra-rational. It takes revelation. This is why Jesus says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven. No one. No one has ascended into heaven because heaven is where supra-understanding, ultra-meaning, ultimate reality is, and no one has ascended there except the Son of Man who descended from there. Jesus is saying ultimate reality comes from heaven. Ultimate reality is revelation from heaven descending to earth. It's not reason ascending from earth to heaven. It's not human effort going up. It's descending grace coming down. It's reason breaking in and intruding. It's not reason trying to ascend. It's revelation coming down. That's why Jesus says, look, he says, I'm the only one who has descended from heaven. I'm telling you the truth. That's why three times he says in this passage to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I'm saying to you, I am the revelation from heaven descended to you. I'm telling you the truth. I'm giving you reality. I'm telling you the mysteries of the ages. 
So John starts with revelation. The only way we're going to be able to solve the mystery of Christianity is reason has its limits. Revelation is descending to reveal it to us. Reason cannot ascend. It's not able to do it. No one can do that except the one that came from there. So John then starts there with Revelation, but he continues with the mystery of the first mystery. What do you think the first mystery he's going to solve for you in, the, in Christianity? What do you think it's going to be? The mystery of sin. So before we even look at the mystery of sin, we have to realize reason will not take you to the end of understanding it. Only Revelation can. So here we go. In the beginning of the gospel, how does the gospel of John begin? Anybody remember? In the beginning. What other book in the Bible begins that way? Great. Then what happens in John next? We have the first seven days, the first week of Jesus' ministry. This is the first time he is reaching people on the planet. The first time him in human flesh reaching people on the planet. What happened in the first chapter of Genesis, the first week of creation, the first seven days? Then what happened after Jesus' first week? How did it end? It ended with what? A wedding in Cana. What happens in chapter 2 of Genesis? The wedding of Adam and Eve. Then what happened next in John? Sin is driven out of the temple. What happens next in Genesis? Sin is driven out of the garden. And now here we are. Here we are with what life is like being driven out. What life is like in the sin, in the death, in the primal evil, just like Genesis. You had Adam and Eve now in the sin, having children, and you get Cain and Abel. And that's why John starts with this global view in 23 through 25 in chapter 2. It's a very puzzling thing that he says in the midst of what just happened in the temple before he moves into Nicodemus, a man. He starts talking about the universal global assessment of humanity. Do you see what he's saying? Look what he's saying. But Jesus, on his part, did not trust himself to them because he knew all people. You get this global, universal assessment of humanity, this global, universal assessment of what it's like now to be driven out, to live in a world in and under the dominion of the powers of darkness. He says, listen, he didn't need anyone to tell him about man because he knew what was in man. Huge, huge preface. Now watch what happens. What's going to happen in chapter 3 and what's going to happen in chapter 4, chapter 3 is going to give us Jesus' first Extended interaction with a human being. A man after the fall of the temple. Chapter 4, he's going to confront the first woman after the fall. We have a, a paradigm being set up here. We're having a story of the world being told by John. He's trying to educate us all about the mystery of sin. And the mystery of sin is this. We're in it. And here's the first man that's reached in it in Jesus' ministry. And then you have a woman, a man and a woman, the Samaritan woman. So you have a religious leader and you have a woman that sleeps around. 
This is us. What do we need to know about life under the sin that reason cannot give us? Why does reason fail? Reason goes to a certain extent and it can't. What does, what does John, what does Revelation try, what is Jesus trying to teach us that we need to know about the mystery of sin? It's found in verse 2. This man came by night. This man came to Jesus by night. This is a huge image. When John, when John uses night, it is never just a physical darkness. When John uses night, it is a spiritual darkness. It is power, uh, an inhuman force of darkness. It's a realm. It's a kingdom. It's a reign. R-E-I-G-H-N or whatever I before E. <laughs> this is not just the time of day. This is the time of the age. This is the time out of the garden. This is the time out of the temple. This is the time of human nature. This is the time of the human condition. This is the time, if Paul was here, of this present evil age. This man came to Jesus by night. Why? Because Nicodemus' nature is night. What does it look like to have a nature of night? What does that mean practically? What does that mean functionally? I mean, how does, how does that affect us? How does it work itself out in our lives and our relationships and the way we interact with everything in life? What does this mean? You know what it means practically? Functionally? It looks like Nicodemus. I mean, look at him. He can't see. It's not that he has a low IQ. It's not that he's stupid. It's not that he, he scores very low on his AT, ACTs and SATs. It's because, in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, it's not born again, it's born from above. Nicodemus interprets it being born again because he can't figure it out. So your translation should say from above instead of Nicodemus's perspective. That's actually a trick. Reason gets you again. Revelation gets you above. Isn't that fascinating? He can't see the kingdom of God. He can't see God realities. He can't see spiritual realities. And we know what this is like. We have a great image of this when we were looking at, who were we looking at? Elijah and Elisha. Remember, Elisha's servant came out. He sees the Syrian army. He freaks out because you should see, you should freak out when you see a Syrian army coming to get you. Elijah or Elisha comes out. He does not freak out. He sees more. He saw heavenly realities. And he asked God to open his eyes, and then the heavenly realities were seen. Nicodemus can't see. It's not an option in his field of vision. It's not an option 
in his interpretations of reality. It's not an option in the conclusions and the thinking and the feeling and the perceptions and the meaning and the reality and the understanding of his mind and heart. His nature is night. What does this mean? What does this look like practically, functionally, in real life? Well, it looks like Nicodemus. Nicodemus is addicted to ascending. Do you see this? He speaks four times. He has four long sentences. I mean, if, if someone, I asked someone in the first service, will you please research and see if anyone talks more in all of John than Nicodemus? Does anyone speak more than Jesus, than Nicodemus? Does anyone interact with God, with Jesus himself, more than Nicodemus? He has four sentences. In each sentence, there's a word translated in your English, and I'm going to give you the English translation, then I'm going to give you the original so you know what it really means. You've got the English translation. He says over and over, can, can. He says, no one can. How can? Can someone? How can this be? The original language would be something like this. No one's able to do that. No one has the strength to do that. No one has the power to do that. How, how does ability like that come from? How does that happen? In other words, for him, over and over again, he's consumed in a world of can, strength, ability, reason, ascending. In other words, Nicodemus does not understand what Jesus is saying because he only knows human effort. That's all he can see. That's all he knows. He only knows reason's assent. He only knows human self-reliance. He only knows human self-strength. He only knows that. That's his only world. That's all he can see. So his nature is night means he's spiritually blind. His nature is night means he's addicted to trying to ascend into heaven. He cannot conceive of a world when there is no I can. What are you talking about, Jesus? How can this be? He's addicted to ascending. His nature is night. John starts with revelation over reason. Not that reason is bad. It's just not enough. It's not that re revelation's irrational. It's super rational, ultra rational. Then he moves to the mystery of sin, and now he moves to the mystery of a new self, <laughs> a new nature. Verse 7, 6 and 7, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. What does this mean? What this means is that the Adamic self, the old self, if Paul was here, he'd say the sinful nature, and both Paul and John call it the flesh, the human nature that's night, the human nature in the sin, the human nature in the death, the human nature in the primal evil, the human nature under the dark powers is incapable of healing itself. It 
it cannot fix itself. It cannot self-cite itself. It can't self-heal itself. It can't self-redeem itself. It can't self-cure, cleanse, justify, rescue, control, change, transform, make itself alive. It cannot heal itself. There must be a new nature. There must be a new self. Not an Adamic self. A new self. Not an old self. A new self. Not a flesh. A spirit self. It doesn't mean no body, please. Someone must descend from heaven to earth, a new self must end an old self. And all of a sudden, we're in a mystery of Christianity, are we not? How does that happen? How does the Holy Spirit, because the wind blows wherever it does, right? That's what he says. How does the Holy Spirit descend from above reach someone and give them a new self. And then Christian, how do you continue to get the Holy Spirit descending and renewing your life? You want more of the Holy Spirit. There's so much talk in the church today about being filled, anointed, whatever, tap into, yield, uh, I don't know, secret techniques about how to get the Holy Spirit and here are signs if you get them. How? How does the Holy Spirit descend upon you? How, if you were Paul, and he says, look, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. I want you to walk around in the Spirit. Well, here's the text. How does that happen? How do you function experientially, Christian? Grow in walking in the Spirit. Grow in being filled with the Spirit. Grow in the fruits of the Spirit in your life. How do you get continually renewed? So how do we become a Christian? How do you grow as a Christian? How does that happen? John starts with a mystery. The mystery of revelation. The mystery of sin. The mystery of a new nature or a new self that's no longer night, but something else. Spirit, not flesh. And he ends with the mystery of mercy. 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I'm the only one that can tell you the way it is. He continues in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have a new self. Whoever believes in him, the, the nature of night ends. Whoever believes in him, the flesh goes and he's born from above. Whoever, the secret to becoming a Christian, the secret of Christianity, and the secret to growing in the Holy Spirit and growing in the Christian life is the same. It's beholding Him. In Moses' day, Israel's nature was night. 
And so God sent poisonous serpents into Israel's midst to make it real, to make it felt, so that they feel the poison killing them in their bodies. Because he gave them a physical sign to exhibit the spiritual reality. They didn't get that their nature was night. They didn't get the poison that was coursing through their veins and killing them. So he sends serpents to make it real, to make it match. So now they see, I have poison in me, killing me. And Moses walked in and he said, oh, God, have mercy. And God did. He said, Moses, I want you to take a bronze serpent. And I want you to walk through the midst of those with the poison. And if they look upon the serpent, they'll be healed. Why a serpent? Because only a substitute serpent can kill the serpent. Because only a substitute poison can kill the poison. Only a substitute death can kill the death and end the night. And so Moses walks in with the substitute serpent. Some, however, focused on the poison. I'm dying. It's hopeless. My hand's turning blue. It's working itself up to my heart. I'll be gone in about five minutes. Where are you, God? How can I take your Bible as literal? How can a good God allow this? Some focused on healing themselves. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe more. I'm going to have faith more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to obey more. I'm going to be more devoted. Uh, I'm going to avoid sin, particularly that sin, whatever sin got me here. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to apply biblical principles to my life and to my relationships. I'll choose God. I'll choose holiness. I'll choose joy. I'll choose to be humble. I'll choose to believe. How does a nature that's night do that? And some say, I'm going to heal myself. I'm going to heal my sex will heal me. Human approval will heal me. Success will heal me. Money will heal me. Comfort will heal me. Food will heal me. Some just denied the poison. Listen, I'm okay. Look, everybody's, nobody's perfect. I mean, everybody's a sinner. Um... I'm not like them. Look, it's my parents' fault. It's government's fault. School's fault. It's my coach's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's my chemical imbalance fault. It's my mental illness fault. It's not my fault. But many 
looked upon the substitute servant serpent and were healed. Healed. They became Christians. And Christians, that's how you continue to be healed. That's how you continue to be renewed. Because the Spirit only goes with Jesus. This is a this is a, a, a passage that everybody uses about the wonders of the Holy Spirit. But the last thing that's said is Jesus. Because when you look at the substitute servant, the substitute man, the substitute poison, the substitute death in your place, the spirit descends. That's how you walk around in the spirit. That's how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Augustine said of this passage, a death is gazed on that death may have no power. Luther said of this passage, in the serpent, God thus prefigured his own son for the people of Israel. And I want you to realize this. He says that all the Bible, this is how John reads the Bible. John is reading Moses in light of Jesus and that that's how we're supposed to read the Bible. And I've been saying that forever, but I want you to hear somebody else say it. That's what Luther is saying. And he says, look, he was to assume the form of an accursed and damned man, yes, of a serpent, thus becoming the savior of the world. Three times Jesus says in John, the son of man must be lifted up. The son of man must be lifted up. The son of man must be lifted up. Why? Because the lifting up is his death and his resurrection. His death and his resurrection makes all things new. His death and his resurrection turns the nature of night into a new self flesh into spirit. His death and resurrection descends the Holy Spirit upon you. So, stop focusing on the poison. Stop looking at the poison within you. Look and live. Stop trying to heal yourself. You can't. Look and live. Stop denying what you know is coursing through you even now. Look and live.